Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Name Three Songs. I'm Sarah Fagan. I'm Jenna Million. And this is a podcast where we challenge sexism in the music industry and empower fangirls. Because let's be honest, fangirls knew about that band way before you did. And if you stick around long enough, we'll also let you in on some new music the girls are already crazy about. So, not only do we have a really big episode for today... We also have some news to share with you all. We're going on vacation for a month because Jenna got a real girl job. Ayo. We will be missing from your guys' podcast timeline just for one month. And then we'll be back in your guys' feeds on October 24th with new episodes. So you won't get to miss us too much, I promise. But if you do, we still are going to be active on our Patreon. So we will still be putting out our Did You Hear episode, which is the news you need to know with a feminist twist, as well as our monthly music meltdown episodes. So if you're really missing us while we are gone, you can come and join us over at patreon.com slash name three songs. And we do have two new Patreon members to shout out as well. So Shane and Annika, we are so excited you guys decided to join our Patreon community. And... We're still going to be hanging out on social. If you guys miss us, come say hi. We'll still be there. Go throw us a follow. We're at Name3Songs on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. Like, we'll still be putting up our content so you won't miss us too much just in your podcast feed. So with that being said, what are we talking about today, Sarah? We're talking about slash fiction. I'm not going to even beat around the bush with this one. I am so pumped that we are finally talking about this because I feel like this is one of the most stigmatized things that fangirls take part of in fandom culture. People of all genders read this and write this. It definitely predominantly is women, but I feel like the stereotype is that teen girls are out here fetishizing gay men and that is not at all what's happening and so we wanted to talk about this today to give you guys some information about what this is really about and our thoughts and feelings on it and we also have a literal fan fiction expert specifically who also focuses on slash fic which is like the coolest thing that I can ever say that somebody is a legitimate expert on this I never would have thought that there would be doctors and scholars focusing on fanfic when I was sitting on live journal confused as to whether I was following role play accounts or real accounts of the band members that I was obsessed with. So we are going to be prefacing it with some definitions in case you guys aren't super familiar on what slash fiction is. But just so you know, the guest that we have joining us today is Dr. Judith Fatala, who is an author and lecturer in media and cultural studies, presently working at Lancaster University. Her research interests include digital and new media, fan studies, user-generated content, and some of her previous works have been channeled into books titled Fan Fiction and the Author, How Fanfic Changes Popular Culture Texts, and Emo, How Fans Defined a Subculture. So she's super knowledgeable on this. We're super excited to have her, but... Just to give you guys some background info on what fan fiction and slash fiction actually is, Sarah, can you fill us in? Sure. So I'm going to start this off easy, which I'm just going to give you guys 
a run-of-the-mill definition of fanfic. Fan fiction is literally just fiction written by fans that either is about pre-existing characters in fiction novels, so about like Harry Potter or Supernatural or Sherlock or Doctor Who. Those are very popular topics as well as Star Trek. People talk about different series and movies. So many things. Nothing is off limits. And also this has turned into real person fiction where people write about real people and they sort of live out their parasocial relationships by writing fiction about these people. Most of the time, this is like a completely healthy thing to be doing. It's just a way to sort of, as I said, live out parasocial fantasies or ideas or whatever in order to play out your ideas of like who a person is that you really love and enjoy. It's really popular in emo music as well as K-pop, but we're not talking about that today because do this main focus is on the emo genre of fan fiction and slash fiction. So that's our main focus. And I will say one thing that I personally learned, which is a huge stigma around fan fiction, I think, is that people assume it's all about sexual relationships and that's not always the case. Yeah. I feel like that's definitely like a big thing that people think and assume, but a lot of it is very much just like PG writing. There are fanfics that range in one shots, which are like a thousand, two thousand words to anywhere up to like 600,000 word fan fictions that take characters from Harry Potter and make them better and more interesting. Like it's just a dedication. It's, it's dedication. And it's honestly just people being like, these characters are good, but I think that the author didn't really see where they were going with this. Let's make this better. And it's just like a really nice way to like live with characters you love for like a longer time mm. and be able to view them from that viewpoint of like anybody who's read a book or watched a tv show has read between the lines and created some sort of idea of who a character is i think and fan fiction takes that and runs with it and i think it's really beautiful and incredible but because there is that focus on the sexual of it all because there definitely is erotic fanfic leaning anywhere from coffeehouse fic which is like oh, your two favorites meet in a coffee house and they have like a very cute romantic relationship and it's very like meet cute kismet sort of situations anywhere all the way up to like BDSM, like <laughs> torture play. Anything you can possibly imagine has probably been written about your two faves together at some point. The craziest ships you can find. And so with that being said, as we said, we are focusing on slash fiction today. And so to give you a bit of background on that, Kayla Hale Stern gave us a bit of history on the site, The Mary Sue, in an article she wrote in 2018, which is about Kirk and Spock. Because if you know anything about fanfic or slash fic, then you know that it all started from Star Trek. And so basically what Kayla writes is that Kirk slash Spock stories, meta and theories have been traded through Star Trek groups since the original series started in the 1960s. So fans are writing this in fan letters and they were sort of trading this around. It was very much like a subculture. You had to know the right people to get your hands on this. But in 1974, a woman named Diane Marchant published a story called A Fragment of Time, which is recognized as the first ever piece of Kirk slash Spock fiction to be published or consumed beyond a close circle of friends. It appeared in the R-rated Star Trek fanzine called 
Grup number three in 1974. And the original series had been canceled in 1969 after three series, but its wildly dedicated fan base wasn't about to let their favorite characters fade into obscurity. And so they kept the ball rolling with letter writing campaigns, zines, and conventions, and their tireless dedication was a big part of why Star Trek eventually turned into a cultural phenomenon, which is just like (laughs) so interesting. And this story, neither character is named in it, Kayla writes is that they're like gaming in the use of pronouns so that it's never precisely clear in the text that it is two men having a romantic mm. encounter while the narrator of the story who is being treated to some tender and then increasingly sexual caresses is called he she puts in parentheses it's Spock the second character's actions are shown as an abstract that doesn't require identification or else referred to as simply quote the other and then again in parentheses, she, she goes, it's Kirk, he of the blonde head. This is really interesting because of what we just learned about homophobia and the AIDS crisis. And so while this type of fan fiction would have been seen as like very obscure, very taboo, they're like purposely hiding it. So you only know if you know. Exactly. And Kayla goes on to say that her intentions for this interpretation were hardly a secret because in the publication, she did include a drawing that she made at the top of the story that 100% showed Jim Kirk and Spock locked in an embrace, which I think is just like icon behavior completely. And so the reason why this is called slash fic is because the Kirk slash Spock pairing was literally shown with a backslash between the two names. And so because of that, it was punctuating rather than being Kirk and Spock, which would denote like two main characters involved in the story in Instead, it's Kirk slash Spock. And that was sort of the code word of, oh, this is going to be gay. Oh, the evolution of internet culture, man. I also think it's really cool that it started with fanzines. Because if you think about, well, I don't know how many of you are like familiar with zine culture, but zines have like existed as a way for fandom to like express their love and interest of whatever it is for a long time. If you think of like punk zines, that's what first comes to my mind of it was a celebration of the culture. And so it's really cool that that was kind of one of the first ways this was documented. Yeah, completely. And it's really incredible how this one thing that was really popular within the Star Trek fandom that also became popular within other fandoms and created just a subculture in and of itself of fanfic and slash fic. So that sites like fanfiction.net or AO3, even Wattpad came to exist where people were using these online publication tools to write mostly fanfiction stories. Fanfiction and especially AO3 are very well organized. You can literally put in the exact specific thing that you're looking for and it will bring it up for you. So if you're like, oh yes, I want to read about Pete Wentz and Mikey Way tickling each other for three hours, there will probably be a fic about it and AO3 or fanfic will be able to bring that up for you. These are things where like, if you are looking for something specific, you'll be able to find it. If you want to find something that has no sex, but is romantic in nature, you can also find that. There's ratings. There's all these things. You can find any pairing whatsoever, as I already stated. So there's just a lot to it. And people put a lot of work into it because this is a really important part of fandom culture and an important part of parasocial behavior in a lot of ways that makes parasocial behavior not as dangerous in the long run I think because people are able to act out their fantasies in writing rather than like creeping on Taylor Swift at her house yeah that's very true like you said I mean there's so many ways that you know writing fan fiction is like a healthy part of 
being in fandom. And today, you know, we're going to talk a lot about that specifically within the emo scene. And then we're also going to talk about when things get too far. Is there a line where things turn toxic? You know, specifically as we're looking at One Direction with the Larry Silenson of it all, what was once all fun and games turned into a sour relationship between the two of them. So there's much to unpack today. It's a really fun conversation. We're really excited for it. So without further ado, let's just get right into it. All right, Judith, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to get into this conversation with you. Thank you for inviting me. Throughout our research on lots of topics, your essay is staging a queer baiting has come up quite a few times. So we're definitely excited to talk to you today about slash fic, because I feel like this is a polarizing topic that Mm -hmm. a lot of people have read or taken part in, but also a lot of people have maybe been afraid of for one reason or another. And so I feel like it's important to talk about and to kind of destigmatize in a way, but also talk about how there can be some shortfallings of it. And so in doing our research, we've come across a lot of information about how this phenomenon of slash fic has taken part a lot in fictional spaces. Obviously, Kirk and Spock are a huge part of this, as well as like the Sherlock fandom, Supernatural, etc. Even Harry Potter, there's lots of slash fic pairings in those realms. But it's hard to imagine that if in the late 60s, early 70s, people are writing Kirk and Spock fic, that there wasn't also like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards fanfic making its ways somewhere. So I was just curious if you know if there's a discernible point in slash fic slash fanfic history where real people start being the leads in this situation? Well, I think the first thing to kind of realize is that in the 60s, slash fic in general was very much like a closed culture and a closed mm. community. And like now, as you said, most people at least kind of know what it is because if you go on Twitter, you've probably heard of it. And also, of course, thankfully, homosexuality is much, much less destigmatized than it was in the 60s. But slash fic in the 60s was a secretive community and if you want to kind of learn more about that there's a book called Enterprising Women by Camille Bacon Smith which is obviously very outdated now but it's like a kind of ethnographic journey that she took into finding out about that culture and there's a lot of issues with that book it's quite problematic in some ways but it is a good history of you know slash culture in the 60s and 70s bit late in the 60s actually we know there was real person fic happening because it is documented in the 60s in those same periodicals that you know Kagan Spock slash was coming out in and as you say I would be extremely surprised if there wasn't bad fic I'm sure there was <laughs> but it's kind of hard to document reliably until we get into like the 90s and Usenet groups people like coming out on the first mailing list it did definitely exist in the 90s on Usenet mailing lists but Of course, a lot of that has disappeared because the internet was very unstable and it was not, like, well stored. Perhaps purposely. You know, I think (laughs) think even then, probably, you know, you had to know the mailing list and you probably had to know, you know, the way to get into it. And then the 2000s just kind of exploded with LiveJournal and the kind of rise of emo fandom and related bands and pop punk Mm -hmm. it kind of just like became all over live journal and that's when i think it started to get a little bit more visible outside of the fandom itself so from personal experience i was like 12 on live journal my parents were like oh it's private you're fine and i'm like you thought (laughs) yeah (laughs) because as as we know 
from being lab journal users. There's tons of communities and all that stuff. There's a lot more to it than just writing a journal yeah. to your, that your like friends can see by locking it to friends only. And there are so many subcultures of fanfic and slashfic on live journal, at least from my memory of it. I just remember there were even people who would essentially cosplay as these people where they would make fake accounts where they would play as being like Brendan and Ryan Ross because yeah, that was like play. my yeah. ship as a child. I was like, these two men are in love and nobody can tell me anything. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, let's not forget, they did have live journal accounts because I'm old enough to remember yeah. their, like, their posts on the MyChem communities and stuff. And also MySpace, which in retrospect was incredibly unsafe for kids to be on like <laughs> like that was the wild wild west of the internet but um, i'm yeah i'm old enough to remember myspace accounts and some of the the crazy stuff that went on there but that is the thing about those sites live journal and myspace is that those bands that in the very early 2000s were just starting out did have their own like pages mm-hmm. and accounts and, and interacted with kids but yeah people used to role play sometimes making it clear that they were role playing sometimes not, not. and you kind of had to wonder what you know what were they actually trying to pass themselves on which because that would just be impersonation which i guess people have their well, yeah i was gonna say this is really crazy because role play when you're making it known it's role play is one thing but otherwise it's, it's literally just like impersonation like you're pretending to be someone you're not isn't that like identity theft like very early stages of the internet i feel like this type of stuff would not fly today oh definitely but then i mean what would from the early days of the internet yeah. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, but it's interesting actually that there hasn't been a lot of study on people's motivation for role playing that is actually trying to pass themselves off as different people. Because as you say, I guess nowadays we just call that identity theft. Um, but. <laughs> And also, like, it would be super obvious. I was telling Jenna before we started recording that, like, I followed Brendan and Ryan both on their live journals because I was like, this is fascinating. Like, this is crazy. But there was a role play account that I was like, this has to be their secret account because it was so well done. It's just so funny thinking back to it. I'm like, wow, what a different time. And like... Yeah, I, I was saying the other day, actually, to one of my friends, it's crazy how there's so much moral panic about kids on the internet now. And mm. the internet now is so safeguarded in such a walled garden compared to yeah. what it was in 2003, 2004. And they were just like gore sites everywhere, adults on MySpace pretending to be teenagers. I mean, mm-hmm. and our parents had no idea what we were doing on there because they didn't, because the internet was so new at home. Yeah. I mean, in, in retrospect, it was absolutely a, a different online world. I think we forget to a degree how different it was and how it looks in retrospect. Oh yeah, and like some of the fakes were like very, well, believable. Very convincing. Yeah. Like I rem- I had friends who thought that they were talking to members of McFly and I'm like we're 15. Why would Dougie Pointer message you on MySpace? Like that's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just it's just so crazy like looking back on it especially in regards to the fanfic of it all and the role playing of it all and all those things of ha- that were happening because I think a lot of those people didn't think that they were causing any harm in mm. a lot of those points but they were also reaching out to real people on the internet and in order to like continue their like role play game but sometimes it just wasn't clear <laughs> it's just it's so wild because I was saying to Jenna that there's just so much that was kind of unpacking itself in my brain while reading this stuff where I can't remember what we were talking about 
the other day, but I had a moment where my brain remembered McFly slash fic and that this was yeah. something that I had buried away in my subconscious of something that because like I wasn't I don't think I I don't remember reading it so much as coming across it on the live journal communities that I was part of, of just like really homoerotic drawings of like Tom Fletcher and Harry Judd having sex. And I was like 15 and I was like, <laughs> and my brain literally just like he was like, here, look at this. And my I fully just like saw the drawing in my brain as if, it, as if like it was 15 years ago and I'm sitting on live journal, like clicking on like a read more link, expecting like mood icons. And instead it's just <laughs> like homoerotic drawing. Yeah, full on. <laughs> yeah, I remember being young enough to feel like slash, but like I was doing something vaguely wrong. And, you yeah. know, and that, you know, if anybody knew what I was doing, there would be some kind of terrible consequences <laughs> when you were looking at. Which now, as an academic, like, who's been studying fan culture for over 10 years now, it just seems so bizarre that I would have felt that way. But, you know, it did feel like a secret that if people mm-hmm. knew, you know, what you were engaging with, there would be some kind of terrible and shameful consequence. But yeah, but of course, part of that is that, you know, we forget how homophobic it, people openly were in the early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, Jenna and I have called up the context a fair amount of times about how, especially we forget that most of the people other than Panic at the Disco that were popular in that pop punk emo sort of thing with like My Chem and Fall Out Boy, they were older than a lot of the bands that you would like when pop punk became more mainstream. Those bands started becoming closer in age to the listeners, whereas like Pete and Gerard were like 15-ish years older than a lot of the demographic. And so I think that the mindset of that is that we don't realize that they grew up in the height of the AIDS epidemic and exactly. that and, and all of the homophobia behind that. And so we've called that to attention in our episode where we talk specifically about Pete. But I mean, there is all of that homophobia that a lot of people, especially like the people who listen to our podcast, haven't really had to deal with because mm of gay marriage becoming legal and a lot of the other things that have happened over the past like five to ten years just in pop Mm. culture and who's accepted as just being gay is like allowed now and like isn't something that is as scary as it once was especially to these men who were doing things that now they would definitely be cancelled for doing but at that point in time it's like they're making something accessible that wasn't. Yeah Billy Joe Armstrong has talked about this hasn't he because he said like not long ago that he thinks he probably is by section probably always has been but it simply would not have been done in you know the 90s in punk circles you would have been absolutely ostracized you know for for intimating that kind of thing and that's something that actually that i talked about in the queer beauty article when i was talking a little bit more about the idea of kind of a bit more in defensive stage gay that we forget that 2004 2005 was a different world in terms mm-hmm. of you know, the acceptability of queer affection, particularly in, like, hardcore and punk spaces. And there were risks to this. Like, I remember when MCR was bottled at Reading, you know, and people shouting, like, you faggots, and this kind of stuff. Like, there was a risk to this kind of performativity, and we forget, you know, because, well, I think some people forget. And, and, you know, some people just haven't grown up in the same culture. You know, a lot of kids now, they, I mean... (laughs) It's 2021, isn't it? How did that happen? They would, they were like, maybe some of them weren't born. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's that. 
So you just mentioned kind of this early emo scene in the mid 2000s, which really kind of stemmed from the very political, very punk, very hyper masculine environment. And we see with emo a lot, I think as you said, it's not that they were necessarily feminist, but they were more like, they were challenging those very hegemonic masculine roles and leaning into the more quote unquote feminine side, a quote unquote, your emotions being feminine, right? Exactly, yeah. And so do you think that because it was like this reaction to punk, because it was them being more in tune with their emotional side, that that kind of led them to lean all the way in going towards stage gay and everything else? Well, I think that there is definitely a kind of political impetus behind early stage gay and like some of the bands have been quite explicit about that there is a rebellion against the kind of all rage or macho sometimes racist like excesses of the punk and hardcore scene but i think as well you're quite right to the we shouldn't like confuse this with feminism because sam de Bois, this he's that author who used the term beta male misogyny which i think is quite astute in talking about a lot of emo lyrics and emo performativity that you know the masculine subject is still very much like the center of everything and girls are just usually like a source of pain and suffering and there's also this thing which is kind of inherited from punk in some way which is like well most men are neanderthals but i'm a poet therefore girls yeah. only sex you know which yes. is obviously in its own way kind of toxic so yeah i don't know if you can if we can kind of attribute like individual psychological motives for whatever for like performativity of stage gay i definitely think there's a political impetus at least behind early stage gay but now as i say like it's a different world and some people would attribute a much more commercial impotence to it because it's very sellable isn't it yeah yeah but yeah initially i do think that it was quite a kind of strong statement and and response against some of the hardcore punk scene excesses which i mean like in in the uk the punk scene was kind of infiltrated by white nationalist skinheads Mm in a way that was really damaging and scary and there was like a backlash against that like punks against skinheads or punks against racist skin or like skinheads against racism and everybody kind of factioned off into these different groups but i would say like initially yeah i can't speak for anybody's psychological motivations nor would i want to now i think it's a lot harder to say particularly of course because these bands are, are now a lot bigger and are on major labels and are not celebrities the way beyonce is a celebrity but much yeah. more commercial products than sellable commercial yeah, products. It's, this is one of those things that's so fascinating because it's like there were so many cultural things that had to happen for all of this to come together, for all of this to happen. <laughs> and it's like it yeah. could only have happened at this point in time. Because yeah. this is a conversation Sarah and I have often of, you know, presenting yourself in a way that was formerly viewed as gay. For example, Harry Styles wearing pearls and nail polish, whatever. There's lots of people doing this now, not just Harry Styles. But it's like with these individuals and with Pete Wentz, for example, like was this a political motive or was it anti-establishment? Was it like, hey, you know, kind of like a middle finger to the big man or was it them exploring their identity authentically? But within the context of the emo scene, sometimes maybe it doesn't really matter because it was opening doors for so many kids in the audience growing up realizing, hey, it's okay to be different 
different. It's okay to be gay. It's okay to wear eyeliner or kiss whoever you want to kiss. I mean, Pete Wentz and Harry Styles very different generations and different scenes. But Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a discourse analyst. So when it comes to things like internal psychological motivations, like one, I'm definitely not an expert. Two, I don't think it particularly matters. Like I'm much more concerned with effects. Like I think the visual statements and verbal statements have sociocultural effects that we can analyse and I don't particularly think there's like a great deal of value in trying to mine out people's individual psychological and emotional motivations, you know? I mean, maybe a psychologist would, but I'm not a psychologist (laughs) nor would I want to be. I'm in media and cultural studies. I think also the conversation around that of emo trying to set themselves apart from punk music and trying to make a more safe space for more people because I think that at the time especially when you read into it because I was would have been too young to have actually experienced it but reading about it it feels very much like if you were anything other than a cishet white man going into the punk scene you're most likely going to get beat up or people yelling things at you or whatever I mean and then emo sort of pops up and makes it more accessible for people who don't fit within those norms it is just interesting in that regard because also it feels like as Jenna was saying and also you Judith at that point in time it felt necessary for them to kind of go above and beyond and be a bit outlandish in the leaning into this feminine idea to sort of be like, hey, if you don't agree with this, then you don't belong here. And I feel like there is a lot of discourse also online about how these bands especially Fall Out Boy because they are more in the mainstream right at this moment in time, like how they don't do that very much anymore. But it's like they, they don't need to. And so it's not so much that it was a lie. It's more so that Pete's job is done. <laughs> like he can do what he wants. To an extent, yeah. yeah. I think, like, it's, I think it's, we should remember, like, there were anti-racist punk bands and that kind yeah. of stuff. Actually, um, Andy Hooley and Pete Wentz were in an anti-racist punk yeah. band, that, um, Race Traitor, that had a few, like, magazine covers and stuff. It didn't really go anywhere but that band was really literally just to make like the whole point of it was just to be like let's make an anti-racist punk band which tells you something about the punk scene doesn't it and I mean I think as well that we shouldn't emo is is still pretty white I mean yeah yeah, we know that like yeah some band members are biracial or South American or mixed but like just even like at a visual level like visually speaking yeah emo is pretty much dominated by white men oh yeah or at least white passing so I think we we shouldn't like overestimate I think that it's much more I don't want to say radical anymore or okay I think it was much more radical in terms of gender politics and sexual politics than it was in terms of either race or feminism. Yeah, 100%, definitely. And I feel like that's also why the other issues get overshadowed so much because it's like, oh, well, look how much we did for like gender nonconformingness in the scene and how much like that's been accepted now. And it's like, yeah, now men just use that to gaslight women. (laughs) Yeah, I've always said that emo was better for not for gender nonconforming boys than it was for women and girls. Yeah. Yeah. 
That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so bringing it around to the slash fictionness of it all, uh, there's so many layers to this. Okay, so we have <laughs> boys kissing boys on stage, boys wearing skinny jeans, wearing eyeliner, Pete being on the cover of like the Gay Out magazine, but mm-hmm. also saying he's but saying, straight. But I'm not gay. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And then them acknowledging slash fiction in interviews and like kind of making a joke out of it, kind of egging it on. Are they perpetuating these fantasies essentially within slash fiction? Who exactly? The industry, the artists? The artists. I would say, yeah, to an extent, but I'm not sure that that has anything more to do with sexual politics than it does with just media convergence in general. Because I think that the the way that the media industry engages with fan culture has changed so completely from crappy attempts to censor and ban it, which never were going to work, to acknowledging it with some kind of distance to engaging and monetizing it, which is what is happening now, and just ignoring the bits I didn't really like, that I kind of see it as, if you like, encouragement of fan productivity is kind of just another form of of media convergence. So I think, yeah, it is encouraging, but I don't know if that is to do with sexual politics. It might be more to do with industry and fan convergence in general and media Mm. convergence in general. Now, what the effects of that are in terms of sexual politics didn't really make, like I said, motivations don't really change the facts. So maybe it is progress, maybe it is a good thing in terms of sexual politics. So I guess my answer would be yes, with a caveat to probably not read too much into it in terms of gender politics. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I think it is interesting because we do talk a lot about these artists' relationship with the media and the media's relationship with these artists. But I think that in regards to the way the media sometimes will latch on to things that they find because they're like, oh, this will be a way to get this artist on more rocky ground to get stuff out of them, it feels like. And so based off of the stuff that I have found in regards to like especially the like holy trinity of emo stuff and like how they would ask questions and sort of bait them it sort of felt like they were trying to trip them up and get them to be like yeah no this is fake this isn't real but i think that the bands were so aware that that never really happened but it is interesting in that regard because as you said like the media has changed and now there's a lot of like fans involved in journalism so when they're talking about it they come from a place of actual knowledge and not judging 
judgment, just more so of like, oh, I'm in a place now where I can actually get the answers I want. Whereas I think prior to that, when these emo bands were being interviewed so much and being questioned about that stuff, that it felt more like they were trying to pull something out of them that they expected to be there, but probably wasn't. And actually, I fully credit MCR and Fallout Boy for handling that really well in general, Mm -hmm. because I think that they could troll them right back. You know, yeah. and kind of be very kind of astute and funny about it sometimes, and not just about gender, but also just about like performances of, of masculinity in general. Like I always remember, I think it's probably down off YouTube now, because but there's this one interview somewhere where the interviewer is clearly trying to like bait them into saying like, "What what did you do to Oh, let yeah, we like to do drugs and have sex with girls and stuff. And instead <laughs> of like rising to that, they just say things like trying to get Dungeons and Dragons team together and like collect all the fellowship of the ring memorabilia and things like that just <laughs> kind of as as and like in a very kind of straight face kind of way which I think probably at the time I didn't realize that they were like trolling the interviewer right back and I you know I think that's very clever and funny and I I give credit for that to be fair but as you say like the media landscape has changed now Dan and Phil are the interviewers yeah so you know, <laughs> And so I think also with all of this being said, do we, and I feel like this is a very much like chicken and the egg conversation where there's not a real concrete answer to this, but obviously, as we said, when we started, like specifically the term slash fix started with Kirk and Spock with Star Trek. And that is something that's very much reading between the lines in that relationship. Whereas in especially these emo bands, they are playing up with the gender norms and the femininity and all these things on stage. And so do we think that the slash fic would have always happened or do we think that it became such like a subculture of fandom because these bands were already leaning into queerness in the way that they were Mm, good question i think probably the fact that this performance of queerness as kind of rebelling against the hegemonic masculinity of the punk scene that probably did initiate it but i mean slash fic only really happens well not anymore but it used to only really happen you know when i think there was some kind of subtext to read into it that's where the term slash comes from by the way kick and spot because like it was a secret so they would denote it with a slash mark so you had to know what it meant in order Mm -hmm. to know what it was but i feel like there had to be some kind of there's some old articles about this actually saying that the the intense male-male relationship is fundamental to Western culture and, and literature, largely because women were not real characters or personas yeah. for, you know, such a long time. And Camille Bacon-Smith talks about this a lot, which was definitely more relevant, like, back in the, the 60s and so on. And her participants were saying, well, we have to read relationships into male characters because the women aren't really characters. They're just, like, cardboard cutouts. Like, they're not... Yeah. Yeah, there aren't any interesting female characters or this, which... But now, of course, that's very much less the case. So maybe now it's more dependent on there being a deliberate homoerotic subtext there. It's kind of funny that by historically the patriarchy not letting women have real characters and not really giving them airtime, they did this to themselves. Yeah, they did. They They brought this upon themselves. Shot themselves in the foot a bit there, I think. But as I say, now there's kind of an abundance of 
Or is there, you know, is there an abundance of interesting female characters? Well, I think, so that's actually interesting that you say this because I, as like a teen, I used to love reading. And as I got older, reading became like more of a challenge just for me to be able to focus and all that stuff. And whenever I would get really into books, it would usually just still essentially be like YA fiction books because any adult fiction would always be very heavily into the sex of it all, but also just like very male gaze sex, which isn't fun when you can just go read fanfic, which is like female gaze sex. And I'm like, okay, I'll just read fake stories about these characters on the internet. Yeah, a lot of academics actually have talked about. There's a really early essay by Joanna Russ, which calls slash pornography for women by women with love yeah which is like as you say female gaze sex and camille bacon smith hypothesized that women were unable to imagine a heterosexual relationship that was truly egalitarian which is quite Mm -hmm. problematic in itself you know and some people say that Camille Bacon Smith really is just kind of doing a kind of soft pathologization of women in that you know why do we have to have all these kind of explanations about suffering maybe they just think it's hot you know like why do we have to have women as like these suffering psychological victims but like her participants were saying to her like well we can't write relationships between male and female characters because the female characters are too boring and one-dimensional. Yeah, and we did. We yeah, we did just say that emo is white men, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the whole thing where there's all these tropes where we'll be introduced to a strong female character, but she'll have been the male lead's friend since childhood, and she'll appear just to die to give him personal growth and these yeah. sorts of things. Or even in like YA books that are even sometimes written by women, a lot of times you have the same check boxes. Like if you sit there with like a checklist of like, oh, how is the strong female lead going to be? it's always the same four tropes with like a couple other ones thrown in there so it's always very similar characters like Katniss Everdeen is kind of the blueprint I think for a lot of this and then people sort of just went off that and we're like okay how do we change this a bit to make it seem like it's a different character but it's not but also like you were saying we do have the thing where objectification of women is a huge issue especially of teen girls so they feel very uncomfortable being just even comfortable in their sexuality and in their like well more so in their blossoming sexuality because they are teenagers and then as we grow up and like in our 20s it's still that situation of unlearning the fact that we don't exist to be fucked like we can have the want to fuck yeah but we're taught so much in literature in media and all these things that we're objects to be had and i feel like a lot of what we've read and a lot of like my personal experience and my friend's personal experience of specifically being interested in slash fic is it's like we're not being sexualized in those situations and therefore it feels more comfortable but also we're so used to reading books where girl characters get killed off straight away or girl characters seem strong but they're not really because everything that they do is still based on their emotions about a male character and so you have so little strong female leads in mainstream books that then you go on fanfic and you have all these other people like women and teen girls who are frustrated with that and they write it themselves and they use characters a lot like in the fiction stuff where they use characters that we already know and they just make them better or Mm. they take the parasocial idea of celebrities that they like and make them better and like make it interesting. I mean there's a lot of hypotheses that as I say like the psychology side isn't really my area but I do identify with this to an extent that for girls, teenage girls perhaps who are interested in sex but not ready to have sex it's a kind of safe exploration 
because it removes the female body that you project yourself into. I can kind of see where that's coming from, like thinking about myself as a teenager when I first discovered slash that, you know, I was kind of old enough to be interested in sex, definitely not ready to have sex. So it was in a sense a kind of safer way of exploring it. So yeah, they could be, but also I always remember how in a book by Henry Jenkins, he was interviewing someone who, who rightly said, but why do we have to do all this explaining about women's interesting slash when men can just be into lesbians and it's never even questioned? Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think it's because anything and like this is literally like the backbone of why we even made this podcast of like anything women or girls like or have interest in is automatically judged and questioned and discussed ad nauseum. And it's never really discussed by those women. It's a lot of times just discussed by men or by women who aren't part of those subcultures. And so we try and have the conversations about things that we personally have read or have interest in or like and have been judged for. And I just feel like it's important in that regard to have people who actually like care and understand it discussing it because so many times it's not. It's just people who are looking at it as an outsider, don't really understand it and are trying to give their points of view on it. And sometimes you're like, oh, yes, they hit the nail on the head. But other times you're kind of like you clearly didn't even like read a piece of slash fic before being the expert on this article. Exactly, And that's kind of like now in my old age when people ask me like why do you like slash i'm always tempted to say like to know because i just do why does anyone like anything (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. i mean there was this one interesting article on the huff post that was written by claire fallon in 2015 and she spoke to this professor of psychology called deborah l tolman and she was saying how basically slash fig is a way of writing about sex without writing about girls and that there's this minefield for girls to act on their desires on sexual feelings even though we say everyone can do everything slut shaming shows that's certainly not the case and so I feel like this was one of the better expert thoughts on this where they're not necessarily explaining it away but more so being like it's so hard for girls to understand sex when even in shows where the girl especially right now like we've talked about in the past like Riverdale and these other shows that exist that are supposed to be high school but like I've never met anybody in high school who's doing the things that these people are doing on these shows or like euphoria and those sorts of things that no try like (laughs) (laughs) well i mean we shouldn't but we shouldn't forget that femme slash exists oh yeah although not in emo fandom because there aren't enough women but there's so much yeah i mean it is worth kind of asking do they need to be analyzed differently if if they need to be analyzed do they need to be analyzed differently yeah and also of course that not only women right slash like yeah it probably is it is female dominated but i remember back in the live journal days some of the most like prolific and respected star trek slash authors were gay men not many but a couple it's probably not really like useful to try and assign like overarching motivations to why people Mm -hmm. do it like people have their own reasons for enjoying things yeah a hundred percent i think that there is just such a focus on young girls being interested in this because again people like to judge young girls but also it's like that thing of oh we have to have answers to this and it's like maybe stop yeah 
yeah, why calling did 14 year old yeah. girls and making them feel uncomfortable in ways where they're doing things that you now view as voyeuristic or fetishizing things or like kink shaming teenagers when they don't even know what a kink might be they're just reading stuff because they don't understand anything and nobody's teaching them about it so they have to find things on the internet to understand how anything is and there is as you say I think a question as to why there has to be so much over analysis of what girls do on the internet. Actually, like right now, I'm about to do the book proposal for a book on serial killer fandom. Mm. And true crime is absolutely huge. And the borderline between being a true crime fan and being a serial killer fan is kind of a blurry and policed boundary. Mm -hmm. And there's so much of the like moral panic over serial killer fandom as though it's anything new. It's existed in a jack the Ripper really just seems to be like moral panic over stuff girls do online. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. It's also interesting and intriguing. And I think also a lot of it is that there is this weird thing where, especially in America, this distaste of male intimacy amongst friends where there is just this thing where we grew up in middle school and high school of if a guy a friend hugged another guy friend or like high five for too long they'd be like no homo though (laughs) and so there is that whole thing where they're taught somehow and i'm not entirely sure when this happened or how this happened but there's taught that like there cannot be intimacy between male friends but then it just sort of happens and i mean growing up in the pop punk scene like my male friends were hugging and kissing on the cheek and grabbing each other's asses and doing yeah. all the stuff that you're told guys aren't supposed to do. And it's like, well, of course we're going to fantasize about these men in bands because they're doing it yeah. right in front of us and we're taught that that's gay. We're not taught that that's <laughs> normal friendship. And yet the valorization of the male-male bond dominates Western cultural history mm-hmm. back to Greek literature. I mean, I think that when I was growing up in the UK, yeah, the no homo thing was predominant between boys, mm-hmm. but I'm also half Arab. Mm-hmm. And in Arab culture, there's a, um, certainly until probably still is, like a big taboo against homosexuality as we would strictly define it in Western culture. But Mm. male-male intimacy and male-male physical intimacy, such as holding hands or cheek kissing, is entirely normalised. So I kind of had a somewhat confused perspective on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So I think when... Okay, so we've been talking a lot about fan fiction with fictional characters and then fan fiction when it comes to RPF or like real person fiction. And there's actually an article by Crystal Bell for MTV News where she talked to readers and writers of fan fiction. And so one of these people said, the active participation of writing fan fiction is an intimate venture exploring the external conflicts and motivations of characters you only know from an outside perspective. So like we've talked a lot about parasocial relationships on this podcast and when it comes to like using real people as characters I feel like there's this element of the parasocial relationship where they feel so far away that in a way they are a fictional character because we don't know them in real life we don't know them as real people we know them as their stage persona or like the persona that they show up with in interviews depends I think that certainly for you know people who are unqualifiedly celebrities that is the case 
place. But as I say, you know, when we were using live journals in the early 2000s, like people in emo bands had live journals as well and they weren't famous yet, you know? So I think that's kind of different. But yeah, I think that's definitely true when a person is an unqualified celebrity you know like <laughs> i don't know who do the kids like have as their big celebrities nowadays help me out well, well probably I mean, like the one like direction harry styles yeah yeah i like like harry they know not, they know nothing about him like he's just an idea yeah he's an unqualified celebrity everybody knows the image in the i mean he came from like x factor or britain's got talent or one of those shows yeah so like he was only ever a mediated television image Mm -hmm. so where's the line with as you're just saying like there's certain people who are like proper celebrities where they have very private lives we don't really know about them yeah but then when we think about fandom there was so much content surrounding these people there were so many interviews warp tour was a thing they toured all the time so there was like a more intimate connection there yeah, and I looked into that a lot when I was researching the email book. And actually, when you when I went back through the Wayback Machine on their early sites, the early websites are very amateurish. Panic is the Disco's first About Us page downloads as a Microsoft Word document. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. I could have made that website. Do you know what I mean? And the, the degree of personal miniature way in the blog entries, it doesn't feel like celebrity culture at all. I mean, it feels first from... And also, we're all kind of a little bit celebrity now because we've all well, got, like, media images, haven't we? Yeah. Because of social I mean, media. I mean, honestly... As you were saying that, I was I was literally just thinking about that. I was like, because I wasn't on Live Journal, so hearing you guys talk about it, it's like you yeah. just came across this person who just happened to be in a band that was really popular, but they're just like <laughs> posting whatever they want to post. Like I'm just posting whatever I want to post. Exactly. And, and especially yeah. now, as social media has evolved, we're all presenting a version of ourselves that we we want to share online or that we want yeah. to be perceived as. Well, if someone starts writing oh. real person fiction about us now, because we've got Twitter, <laughs> you know, I think about like what if I now I'm like. And we've all got, like, we all have a mediated, we all have a digital self now that is separate from our physical self, and our digital self that has, like, an online footprint across Twitter and Facebook yeah. and journal sites and professional sites, and we behave differently across those sites. So everybody now has some degree of celebrity in terms of there being a media construct of you. This is crazy. This is blowing yeah. my mind right now. <laughs> but but also, I just feel like, so we're, if, if I'm saying, like we don't know Brendan Urie like in real life but you would also probably never write fan fiction based on your real life friend oh no I feel like I mean well I don't know because <laughs> when I was a kid I used to write like funny stories about me and my friends doing weird stuff and just share them I mean also I'm that sure was if you like have a parody yeah like, like if you yeah. have a crush on someone you're gonna daydream about them but I feel like no I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's somebody out there who's like <laughs> writing proper sexual slash fiction about somebody they know in real life. I don't know. I don't there probably know. is. Let's be honest. They, I mean, I'm sure, you know, when you think about like the range of weird stuff people do, that's probably like not even like no doubt someone is. But I think the question is, what is celebrity and where do you draw the line at? celebrity because i think that if somebody is a genuine 
celebrity, whatever that means. There's an implicit contract and an explicit contract, but also an implicit mm-hmm. contract that the public has some degree of ownership over your mediated persona and you signed that over in exchange for the benefits of celebrity. Wow. But what if somebody is just in a band, but they're not the front man and they have some social media in the same way that everyone has social media and they just like play their instruments and stuff. Mm-hmm. Have they signed the same implicit contract or no? Like, where do you draw the line? Yeah. It's all interesting because I mean, Jenna and I have been also looking into that idea of what it means when you're not the front man of a band, yeah. especially in regards to just women in bands and how they get overlooked and all that. But also I feel like it's really interesting interesting in acknowledging the difference between like an A-list celebrity and then these like emo pop punk bands because there's slash fic of like all time low there's slash fic of like the main of Mayday Parade all these people who feel more accessible because they're famous within a bubble like they can go to Disney World and not get celebrity treatment you know yeah yeah (laughs) I mean some people would call it subcultural celebrity like you have celebrity within a specific subculture and if you're a member of that subculture you know who that person is like I would say there are academic celebrities like Mm -hmm. within the subculture of academia there there are people who are celebrities and if you want to go and find out a bunch of information about that do you know what somebody did make a fanzine for the academic Judith Butler that just reminded me of it. It was called Judy. Oh I don't know what was in there because I never saw it. But it just goes to show that like anytime you get a degree of celebrity within a subcultural sphere, like it could happen, you know? Whoa. Yeah. And I feel like that's also why these emo bands specifically were kind of more understanding and more empathetic about slash fic and more so why they would kind of not necessarily dodge the media questions about it but play into it be like oh whatever because they know that their fans know them to a certain degree where I feel like to them it might not feel as much crossing the line because it's like oh well we're kind of feeding into it anyway so yeah it's not their fault but meanwhile when it comes to real celebrity I feel like that's where the line changes and there's like the shift of where it can be very uncomfortable and not nice for them because it's like they are so aware that these people don't know who they are at all and yet these fans are like no I know who you are and I know that you definitely are like fucking this other member of your band and they're like what? (laughs) I mean from a slightly different angle on that I think that at least from what I've seen in in band fandom people who read and write slash fic are very very aware that what they're writing about is not a real person it's a mediated construct and I did this article called real person fiction as digital fiction which is about how like digital fiction has these different levels of engaging with fiction and and reality because everybody like has a digitized self and it seems to me like maybe this is changing now actually with it being more normalized with the younger generation and things like archive of our own but definitely like in the live journal days people were very knowing and very explicit about the fact that what they're using as a character is a mediated mm-hmm. construct of a person who also exists yeah I mean, I mean we found a couple of 
of interesting articles that sort of talked about the different avenues of fan fiction readers and writers. And I feel like you're definitely correct in that, that most of these writers are very much like aware that they've created a fictionalized version of this. But I think that where this line gets crossed and why I get so frustrated with something that I loved and that really helped me just figure out who I am as a person growing up in reading fanfic and slash fic in general that sort of muddied the waters and muddied my idea of it was when people started shipping Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson together and created the Larry Stylinson ship because this turned something that was so beautiful and helpful into something toxic, I think, in a lot of ways. And while I can understand where a lot of these girls are coming from because there is undeniable chemistry between these two men like and at the point team boys in regards to Harry and Louis it got to the point where it was even affecting their relationship because fans were so adamant that this was true and that yeah. it only was a matter of time that it was going to be proven as such. And because of that, it became this thing that overpowered everything. Whereas in other ships, most of the writers and most of the people that read it are kind of like, this is just me fantasizing. This is me yeah, being aware yeah. that they act a certain way or do a certain thing because that's just who they are. And like me writing this is making me feel like I have the representation that I don't have. Meanwhile, there's countless articles about how... So there was this one article on Vox by Aja Romano where they spoke to people who write this fanfic and all this sort of stuff and they were talking about how there is that term like tin hatting where people are just kind of turning this into conspiracy theorists but that people in the Larry fandom think that everybody who doesn't think that Larry is real are the tin hat people. And so it's become this almost QAnon level delusion that has broken apart two people who were best friends because Louis has been asked about the Harry situation since 2012. So there, he did an interview with a Tumblr blog called Tumblr Storyboard in 2012 where he was asked about this and he goes, this is a subject that was funny at first but now is actually hard to deal with as I'm in a relationship. Me and Harry are best friends. People look into our every move. It's actually affecting the way that Harry and I are in public. He's like, we want to joke around but there seems to be a different rumor every time we do anything. I act the same with, with Harry as I do with any of the other boys. And so that's in 2012. And then you can go on to 2017, where he's interviewed for The Sun with Dan Wooten, and he is in a relationship with this girl called Eleanor, and they're publicly dating. And he's basically saying how the Larry Silenson fandom is being super disrespectful to his girlfriend, and they're like not being understanding. And he goes, so I'm being really protective of my relationship and about the people I love, and yet these fans are still being like this. And he goes on to say how it created this atmosphere between the two of us, meaning him and Harry, where everyone was looking into everything we did. It took away the vibe you get off anyone. It made everything, I think, on both fences a little bit more unapproachable. I think it shows that it was never anything real, if I can use that word. Which is just like, it's heartbreaking because these two friends who just wanted to be friends and act however they wanted around each other felt so much under a microscope that they're like, we can't even stand near each other. And yet fans are like, oh, when you signed your contract, you said that like you wouldn't be in a gay relationship with other people in the band. And so your management is stopping you from having true love and they believe it. They fully believe it. And it's become yeah, this point not, where it's like... like that's l- not slash fiction. That's just harassment. You know, like, yeah, I yeah. think I definitely agree with you that there's a big difference between, like, slash figures, I say, which, I mean, I've never seen that in any fandom that I've ever I've been never in. seen it anywhere else yeah. except for this specific ship. Every fandom that I have ever been in has been really explicit about the fact that, like, RPS is about 
fictional constructions of people who also happen to exist and has nothing to mm-hmm. do with said people. But when you start pushing it onto like people via Twitter or whatever, no, that's just harassment. You know, that's not even that's not fanfic anymore. That's something else. Because and I remember actually when I you know when people first started to talk about real person slash in academia because it was one of the la- like the last areas that kind of people started talking about freely. Were like, well, how would you feel if someone wrote about you? And I just remember thinking, well, I wouldn't care. I just wouldn't want to read it. You know, it wouldn't bother me. I just wouldn't want to like see or engage with it. You know? Yeah. And I feel like that seems to be how most people feel because I mean, yeah. Graham Norton all the time is being like, oh, have you seen this fanfic of like your character and this character yeah. being in a relationship? Well, I guess also in that regard, it's not uh, really them. It's a character that they play, they but played, like. Th- yeah. It's their face, you know? But it's still that thing where, like, a lot of actors kind of think it's funny or kind of cute and, like, are like, oh, like, whatever makes you happy. It's not hurting me. Do whatever you want, you know? And so I think it is just really interesting and crazy that we do have this one specific ship in like just the conversation of it all that became so incredibly toxic that I think it also has made people kind of especially people who are One Direction fans who have left the fandom or even are still in it and like other artists and stuff it makes it harder to kind of be okay with reading any other slash fic because of how toxic the Larry Stylinson of it all became because you're like oh what if it's going to be like this elsewhere I think in emo it's kind of like that's that ship is sailed because people in emo bands like to read their own and tweet yeah. about it or like <laughs> yeah. write or like write it sometimes which is just kind of <laughs> they've jumped the shark there to be honest <laughs> like me you know like i remember when jared way made a live tweet of his reading of some notorious yeah the bread and dairy like milk yeah. one yeah and he was like well that actually was not as which was my reaction as well like you know people said it was so like shocking it's like is that it like i was expecting more you know like that's a lot less shocking than it was sold as you know yeah maybe that's a good thing yeah (laughs) well it's this thing where it's like in the grand scheme of things slash fic is completely healthy and normal to read and to write and to be a part of that subculture but unfortunately there is just like one glaring thing on its record that has i think confused a lot of people (laughs) Most of the time fans write this being like, this person is never going to read this. And it's most of the time not something that should affect the person that they've written about. And as we've said, people in emo scenes read it. They're kind of like, this is fun. Do yeah. what you want. Let me just retweet um, this. <laughs> and so I feel yeah. like they're definitely is the constant questioning of like, why does fan fiction exist? How do people feel about this? All these things, because again, as we said at the start, like people just like to question things that girls like, but also people automatically assume that fangirls fit a certain age demographic, which is not true at all, because anybody of any age can be a fangirl. And so it's just a thing that people sort of focus on where it's like, oh, girls read this, girls do this in order to diminish it when really like, the amount of books that people read that were once fanfic that people don't realize were once fanfic is crazy to, to an extent because so many like romance novels or other things were taken from fanfic. Let's not forget, you know, that until the invention of copyright, 
for text. The idea of writing about an original character was completely foreign. All people wrote about was characters that already existed until like 1600 when, well, I mean, okay, copyright wasn't in, wasn't legislated until 1710, but the idea of original characters or like doesn't even appear until like 1600. So like all of literature is fan fiction until then, you know? <laughs> I mean, Shakespeare literally did like fanfic of all the kings. So, <laughs> if you go on, if you go on Wikipedia, it says that the first real person fiction is attributable to Shakespeare, which is not true at all. Because what about everyone that came before Shakespeare? Well, yeah. actually, no, that isn't quite true. What I said about original characters not being a thing because they were like in Chaucer and so on, but mostly people wrote about stock characters, myths, legends people that already had like a body of literature and devoted to them and the idea that you would want to read about some guy i just made up is like a comparatively (laughs) modern idea because people wanted to read about characters that already had that they already knew and had like an established body of stuff about them and they wanted to see an interpretation about them the idea of like oh this is a book about a guy that i made up that's the historical anomaly not the rest of it Oh my god. It's so funny thinking about how like narratives change because we think that we're becoming more advanced in a lot of ways and like now we're doing things that were so common back in the ye olde days and people are like, it's weird that you're writing stories about real people and it's like, okay, but a lot of the times they're like not even, we don't even know who they are because they're like super famous. So what's it matter? They're just a character. Shakespeare did it. (laughs) Yeah. Have you met the Greek canon? You know, like predating <laughs> the English language, which is what I always say. Like, why do people have to act like something girls are interested in is something new or weird? Because it's not. The idea of copyrighted text is new and weird. And there's a lot of parallels between medieval ways of writing and digital ways of writing and everything being like common but like the point is there's absolutely nothing new about any of this and the the suggestion that it is something new or surprising is just really a way of making stuff that girls do weird yeah I feel like that 100%. Is, <laughs> I feel like that's what it really kind of all boils down to is again turning something that girls like into just a weird thing for no reason because yeah. in most cases we're not seeing a Larry Silencing situation in most cases. We're not seeing this negatively affecting these people in real life. Like in most of the cases of real person fiction, either the people are completely unaware of it or they're backing it and they're kind of like this is fun. You do yeah. you guys. And when people like have the idea that fan fiction is like low quality or something, well, it's it's all qualities, isn't it? It's unregulated. It ran it runs the gamut from the ridiculous to the sublime, like as you would expect from any unregulated form of work. And let's not pretend that there are not published books which are trash, <laughs> because they're, 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 even no matter how many editors they've been through. Yes. I mean, my favorite is when you come across any erotic fanfic that's written clearly by like a 13 year old and they're using just like the weirdest words to like not have to say penis or vagina or like other things. And you're like, what is happening here? Like, of course, there's bad fanfiction, obviously. And also there's unbelievably brilliant and sublime fanfiction ranging from like 100 words to... 600,000 words, you know? So, (laughs) like, yeah, so I mean, how can you make quality judgment about something that is 
the entire spectrum you know it just goes to show that they haven't actually looked at it it's just an idea that they have but i think it is changing you know but it's isn't it ironic that some of the fan fiction that has been adapted for professional publication is not the best fan fiction (laughs) (laughs) i know well it's because all the best fanfic is like a hundred thousand words or more and you can't really turn that into a book (laughs) well i don't know because we can you know, there's all kind, there's digital books now, so true. The amount of books that are available and out there that they have changed the characters from these characters that already existed to new ones, or even like we have the after movie series and book series, which was like Harry Styles, really mediocre Harry Styles, like yeah, BDSM saying, fic. Like, none of it good. The stuff that like gets translated. Why is that? Like I know. Well, so it's, it's, I think it's a lot because like there is all the hype around it because it's an easy read. It's mediocre. Yeah. And so everybody's talking about it. So people read it. And then somebody in literature is like, let's just let's publish it because so many people are obsessed with it. And it's like, no, that's more obsessed with it because it's bad. I mean, some of the, you know, the best fan fiction that I've read has been like multiple hundreds of thousands of words. And it's quite hard, heavy, like it's quite it's a solid read you know yeah and it's got a lot going on in it so yeah perhaps it's just like less less commercial but um i don't know it does seem odd that some of the stuff that has gone translated is just kind of <laughs> all right well judith thank you so much for joining us this has been a very enlightening conversation i've definitely learned a lot it's been really fun talking to you so we will have all of the links to like your works if any of our listeners want to go check out more in the description and yes thank you for joining us Thank you for having me. That was everything I hoped and dreamed it was going to be and more. I learned, I honestly learned so much, but had so much fun with it too. It was really fun and interesting. And just like her perspective on it all was so nice to have because I think that we definitely could have had a really interesting conversation just me and you but having somebody in here who has studied this and really knows their thing like that was so helpful yeah to the whole conversation no I was I was completely thinking that while we were recording too it's like we can always bring our perspectives to it but like somebody who like properly has studied this type of stuff is like just a completely new new perspective that we wouldn't even know about Yeah, it also was just interesting having this conversation in this way because I have become so jaded on slash fic because of how horrendous the Larry Silenson ship is. Yeah. That it became so off-putting of something that I never viewed as really bad. Most of the stuff that I read was not very like erotic in reading. It was very more just like two people who love each other. Very like coffee shop fanfic. You know, yeah. like very just like quaint yeah. and adorable Gentle. and like somebody solidifying my thoughts that certain people loved each other sort of thing. But it is just really interesting when speaking to somebody who's like really studied this and obviously more focusing on the emo realm of things where they were so accepting and still are really accepting of slash fix subculture of it all that there aren't usually that many ramifications to the celebrities of slash fiction existing. But because of Harry and Louis and how clearly fucked off Louis is about this, like I was just like, everybody must feel horrible that slash fiction exists. Like it yeah. really changed my viewpoint on this and doing the research for this episode and also just continuously trying to get you to want to talk about this I feel like it made me acknowledge again that that's not the case this isn't a negative thing like Larry's silence that has 
convinced me that it was for a while. It's like Judith mentioned this earlier of... In a way, the bands were kind of perpetuating it, but they weren't necessarily doing it with the intention of the slash fiction like continuing. But in a way, there's this dynamic between like the artists, the quote unquote music industry and fans where like them doing stuff like this or them encouraging relationships and I, when I mean encouraging, literally just could just be acting the way they are, then kind of fuels the fandom. But in a way, when the fandom is fed in this way, it grows. The fandom grows. It becomes more popular. It becomes a bigger thing. And so it's kind of like a cycle of, like we said, which came first. But mm-hmm. also with that being an attractor to so many fans as a way for them to participate in fandom, it just grows the overall culture around said genre or band. Yeah. I feel like it definitely can in some ways bring fandom closer together, especially when the fans are fully aware, like, oh, this is fictional. This is my idea. This is me taking something that they're already doing and running with it, or this is me creating something out of whatever they feel needs to be. Because I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's just people trying to have a creative outlet in a way that makes them feel seen and heard and more comfortable in a lot of ways. And I think that that's really the beautiful thing specifically about slash fic, which is about fan fiction in general, is that it creates this world where you can feel closer to an artist without it being like unsafe or uncomfortable because as we've talked about in our parasocial relationship things we have seen people stalk people or just become a bit crazy in a lot of ways and I feel like fan fiction is a really healthy way to have a parasocial relationship with a celebrity as long as it doesn't get to the point where you think that the people who are creating conspiracies are the ones who are like well aware that Harry and Louis both have only publicly dated females, you know? Yes. Yeah. So- yeah. It is like, in a way, like, if you take fanfic out of the equation, everyone experiences their parasocial relationships differently. And that literally could just be like making collages of photos of your fave and like daydreaming about pretending to like go on a date with them or pretend, I don't know, whatever it is you're daydreaming about. But like fanfic is a way to like put that into like words specifically. And it's just like exploring that parasocial relationship in a different way. I mean, the amount of really crappy fanfic I personally wrote about McFly and specifically meeting Dougie Pointer on an airplane because that's my favorite trope in fanfic um, (laughs) where the main character is like a cool... 20-something year old that I wish that I was at the age of like 15 or whatever and that just like helped me really understand like my crush and my parasocial relationship with this artist and all that stuff and so it's like coming from the perspective of somebody who was writing really mediocre fanfic and so I feel like it is like a very healthy way to have a parasocial relationship until it gets to the point where there are real life ramifications and these artists are like you're ruining my whole life yeah it's also just that like fan to professional fine line of like even if you're somebody who like works in the industry you're like for us like would potentially be interviewing artists i'm like would i ever (laughs) like imagine like if you got to interview mcfly you'd be like in the back of your head you'd be like wow i definitely wrote fan fiction about you as a teenager but that's okay because you're not gonna be like oh my god i wrote fan i mean maybe you would but (laughs) you probably like there would be a line right you're not gonna project your fandom onto somebody that you're meeting in real life 
Yeah, and that was also interesting about some of the articles we pulled and seeing these journalists speak to people who write this stuff who like very much so understand the line between the fan fiction idea of these people and like the real life version of these people and who it's okay to share with and who it's not. Like if we ever interviewed Pete Wentz, I would be like, yeah, I read Pete Wentz fanfic as a teen and he would be like, that's hilarious. Whereas with McFly, I don't think I would mention it because I feel like Tom Fletcher would judge me and I don't need to be judged by Tom Fletcher. Yeah. (laughs) But it's just a really interesting topic to broach and to think about because there are lots of layers to fan fiction and I just think that slash fic in and of itself is an interesting thing because there is that focus on the females who read it and like the straight females who read it when also there is a huge percentage of people within the LGBTQ community both female and male and gender non-conforming who read and write this stuff but of course as we said like the focus always is on the teen girl of it all because why wouldn't it be you know yeah we always come back to like oh this is the way teen girls are being talked about or this is seen as less valuable because teen girls are participating in it when like even us reporting on that on our podcast is like we can talk about the way teen girls are being demeaned because of this but it does include other communities and other minority groups within that But it's often just seen as a blanket of, oh, all these teen girls are doing this and therefore blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I think that was why it was so important and necessary to like have Judith here who has studied this so much and so in depth because she's so aware of all the other communities who take part in this. And I mean, that's why like part of the conversation turned into us discussing why teen girls are a lot of the focus on these discussions and why we focus on that is because we were the teen girls reading it. So we come from that. Well, at least I was, but like we come from that perspective of understanding and knowing where a lot of people who write or talk about it don't. And so I think for our listeners, I mean, have you guys partaken in fan fiction and slash fiction? Do you partake in just like ship culture? You know, like, is that something that is part of your parasocial relationship with these artists? Because again, like we've said in our episodes talking about parasocial relationships, they're normal and just a completely common thing to have. And there should be no shame about it. And yet, again, here's another topic that people are trying to shame us into feeling bad about reading and being like, oh, like you kinky bastards. And it's like, why is it kinky <laughs> reading about consensual male on male sex? Like, what? True. why is that? Like, why is that kinky? There's nothing kinky about it unless yeah. you are legitimately fetishizing it, which there are communities who do that. But most people don't. So yeah. it's just really in depth. So we would love to hear your thoughts on this. I could literally talk about this forever. So please come slide in our DMs on Instagram or Twitter. We are at name three songs or you can talk to us personally. I am at Sarah underscore Fagan and Jenna is at Jenna underscore million. So thanks for joining us this week on name three songs. Until next time, never let anyone make you feel bad about your favorite band. And you're never too cool to listen to My Chemical Romance. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when each episode comes out and leave us a five-star review. They really help. If you want to find out more about any of the sources we referenced in this episode, you can visit Name3Songs.com. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.